Welcome to Fake Redhead Talking Fast, the podcast where you can hear an opinionated Scot slash share her thoughts. I'm Cassie, the fake redhead in question, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. Two podcast episodes in a month. I really am spoiling you here on this weekly podcast. I hope you all had a fun week. Those of you that went away from last podcast thinking, damn, what superpowers would I give my favourite character? Thank you. You truly are my nerds. Today, you will all be ecstatic to learn that we briefly move away from my beloved Jane Austen. Uh, in fact, away from classical literature entirely, if you are using the definition of classic to re- refer to literature written over 200 years ago. Because the book I will be discussing today is considered to be a classic by thousands, myself included. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for William Goldman's epic tale of sword fights, romance, chases, intrigue, and love. That's right, The Princess Bride. Let's begin. Guys, I am so excited about this. And I owe a massive debt of gratitude to most of the people around me, particularly the friends that I see on a Monday evening and my cousin, who I see every day, because they have had to listen to me bang on about The Princess Bride for about three weeks now, and they have been so patient. So maybe this will get it out of my system, guys. I wouldn't hold your breath though. So first, the overall summary of The Princess Bride. This bit will be largely spoiler free. Um, I will be dropping more spoilers as we go though, so keep that in mind if you haven't yet done yourself the favour of watching or reading it. The basic plot doesn't really vary from the book to the film, which is quite, you know, pleasing to be honest. Uh, Buttercup, in the book we are informed that she becomes the most beautiful woman in the world. Described as having pale skin, green eyes and auburn hair, which basically means ginger, just so you know. It's no big deal. But uh, however, this does not massively concern her and she enjoys most of her days not brushing her hair, riding her horse and being bossy and impolite to the farm boy Wesley, who responds to all her ridiculous commands with three words that are more beloved than the usual ones that are commonly used in these scenarios uh, within nerd circles. As you wish. So good. In the film, it just kind of dawns on Buttercup that she loves Wesley because he just, you know, willingly does all these dumb things for her. Uh, But in the book, it's a result of her being jealous of an older, richer woman taking a shine to him. It's a very weird story about cows. It's odd. Um, Anyway, all very nice. He loves her back, blah, blah. Uh, But he decides to go to America to make his fortune before he marries her so they can have a good life. Spoilers ahead, by the way. Sadly, Wesley is lost at sea after being attacked by pirates and Buttercup vows she will never love again. A few years later, the now very beautiful Buttercup has caught the eye of the Prince of Florin, Humperdinck, in his quest for a wife. The fact that she is the most beautiful in all the land overshadows the fact that she is, like, a commoner. And he asks her to marry him, despite her making it very clear that she will never love him. He doesn't much care, he's more interested in hunting anyway. Uh, Before the wedding, Buttercup is kidnapped by three crooks. Ringleader, Vizzini the Sicilian, a very short guy that has all the ideas. Uh, Rhyming giant, uh, Fezzik, and be still my beating heart, sword-fighting Spaniard, bent on revenge, Inigo Montoya. He my fave. Uh, They are very open about the fact that they fully intend to kill her as part of the plot, although Fezzik and uh, Inigo aren't crazy about doing this because, you know, fundamentally good men. Anyway, um, as it's a part of a plot to start a war with the opposing uh, company, country, Gildar. 
Uh, sadly for them, their plans are interrupted by a mysterious man in black who is in possession of an exceptional set of skills, uh, incapacitating the greatest swordsman on earth, which who is described as a wizard, and the nearly undefeated giant, and killing the tricksy little Sicilian. He then kidnaps the princess himself, but is revealed to be a rather familiar face. The rest of the story follows the adventures of reunited lovers as they overcome fire swamps, pits of despair, death, and all the usual issues that who love throw in our path. Every time I talk about a new book on this podcast, I always find it really difficult to know how much of the plot I should and shouldn't reveal. Um, and I find it really difficult. Uh, but that is basically it. The general theme of The Princess Bride is gentle fun, just being poked at historical writing, romance, and adventure books. But I feel without disrespecting any of them. And Sparknotes actually helped me uh, articulate this. While not fully a satire, because it's not, uh, William Goldman satirises different common tropes. For instance, Buttercup being the most beautiful woman in the world. However, she is not the first, and we can generally understand that she won't be the last. Buttercup's character actually presented me with a bit of a challenge. There are many many moments where I find her altogether too simpering and useless, your typical damsel in distress. But... She can also be remarkably strong in her convictions and stand up for herself when need be. A great example of this is when she confronts the man in black over calling her a fickle harpy. I paraphrase. And y'all already know what's coming. Oh yeah, we've got our first excerpt. To think, she murmured, all that time it was your cup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned, said the man in black. I've spent the last two years building up an immunity to iron cane powder. Buttercup looked up at him. He was terrifying to her, masked and hooded and dangerous. His voice was strained, rough. Who are you? she asked. I am no one to be trifled with, replied the man in black. That is all you ever need know. And with that, he yanked her upright. You've had your moment. Again, he pulled her after him. And this time she could do nothing but follow. They moved along the mountain path. The moonlight was very bright and there were rocks everywhere, and to Buttercup it all looked dead and yellow, like the moon. She had just spent several hours with three men who were openly planning to kill her. So why, she wondered, was she more frightened now than then? Who was this horrid hooded figure to strike in her fear? What could be worse than dying? I will pay you a great deal of money to release me, she managed to say. The man in black glanced back at her. You are rich then? I will be, Buttercup said. Whatever you want for ransom, I promise I'll get it for you if you let me go. The man in black just laughed. I was not speaking in jest. You promise. You. I should release you on your promise. What is that worth? The vow of a woman. Oh, that is very funny, Highness. Spoken in jest or not. They proceeded along the mountain path to an open space. The man in black stopped then. There were a million stars fighting for prominence, and for a moment he seemed to be intent on nothing else than studying them all, as Buttercup watched his eyes flip from constellation to constellation behind his mask. Then, with no warning, he spun off the path, heading into wild terrain, pulling her behind him. She stumbled. He pulled her to her feet again. Again she fell. Again he righted her. I cannot move this quickly. You can, and you will. Or you will suffer greatly. Do you think I could make you suffer greatly? Buttercup nodded. Then run, cried the man in black, and broke into a run himself, flying across rocks in the moonlight, pulling the princess behind him. She did her best to keep up. She was frightened as to what he would do to her, so she dared not fall again. After five minutes, the man in black stopped dead. Catch your breath, he commanded. 
Buttercup nodded, gasped in air, tried to quiet her heart. But then they were off again, with no warning, dashing across the mountainous terrain, heading... Where do you take me? Buttercup gasped, when she, when he again gave her the chance to rest. Surely even someone as arrogant as you cannot expect me to give an answer. It does not matter if you tell or not, he will find you. He, Highness? Prince Humperdinck, there is no greater hunter. He can track a falcon on a cloudy day. He can find you. You have confidence that your dearest love will save you, do you? I never said he was my dearest love. And yes, he will save me, that I know. You admit that you do not love your husband-to-be. Fancy, an honest woman. You are a rare specimen, Highness. The prince and I have never from the beginning lied to each other. He knows I do not love him. Are not capable of love, is what you mean. I am very capable of love, Buttercup said. Hold your tongue, I think. I have loved more deeply than a killer like you can possibly imagine. He slapped her. That is the penalty for lying, Highness. Where I come from, when a woman lies, she is reprimanded. But I spoke the truth. I did. I. Buttercup saw his hand raise a second time, so she stopped quickly and fell dead silent. Then they began to run again. They did not speak for hours. They just ran, and then, as if he could guess when she was spent, he would stop, release her hand, she would catch her breath for the next dash she was sure to come. Without a sound, he would grab her, and off they would go. It was close to dawn when they first saw the armada. They were running along the edge of a towering ravine. They seemed almost to be at the top of the world. When they stopped, Buttercup sank down to rest. The man in black stood silently over her. "'Your love comes, not alone.' he said, then said. Buttercup did not understand. The man in black pointed back along the way they had come. Buttercup stared, and as she did, the waters of the Florin Channel seemed as filled with light as the sky was filled with stars. He must have ordered every ship in Florin after you, the man in black said. Such a sight I have never seen. He stared at all the lanterns on the ships as they moved. You can never escape him, Buttercup said. If you release me, I promise that you will come to no harm. You are much too generous. I could never accept such an offer. I offered you your life. That was generous enough. Highness, said the man in black, and his hands were suddenly at her throat. If there is talk of life to be done, let me do it. You would not kill me. You did not steal me from murderers to murder me yourself. Wise as well as loving, said the man in black. He jerked her to her feet, and they ran along the edge of the great ravine. It was hundreds of feet deep and filled with rocks and trees and lifting shadows. Abruptly, the man stopped, stared back at the armada. To be honest, he said, I had not expected quite so many. You can never predict my prince. That is why he is the greatest hunter. I wonder, said the man in black, will he stay in one group or will he divide, some to search the coastline, some to follow your path on land? What do you think? I only know he will find me, and if you have not given me my freedom first, he will not treat you gently. Surely you must have discussed things, things with you, the thrill of the hunt. What has he done in the past with many ships? We do not discuss hunting, I can assure you. Not hunting, not love, what do you talk about? We do not see all that much of each other. Tender couple. Buttercup could feel the upset coming. We are always very honest with each other. Not everyone can say as much. May I please tell you something, Highness? You're very cold. I am not. Very cold and very young. And if you live, I think you'll turn into a horror Why do you pick at me? I have come to terms with my life, and that is my affair. I am not cold, I swear, but I have decided certain things. It is best for me to ignore emotion. I have not been very happy dealing with it. Her heart was a secret garden, and walls were very high. I loved once, Buttercup said after a moment. 
and it worked out badly. Another rich man. Yes, and he left you for a richer woman. No, poor. Poor and it killed him. Were you sorry? Did you feel pain? Admit that you felt nothing. Do not mock my grief. I died that day. The armada began to fire signal cannons. The explosions echoed through the mountains. The man in black stared as the ships began to change formation. And while he was watching the ships, Buttercup shoved him with all her remaining strength. For a moment, the man in black teetered on the ravine edge. His arms spun like windmills fighting for balance. They swung and gripped the air, and then he began his slide. Down went the man in black stumbling and torn and reaching out to stop his descent but the ravine was too steep and nothing could be done down down rolling over rocks spinning out of all control buttercup stared at what she had done finally he rested far below silent and without motion you can die too for all i care words followed her whispered from far weak and warm and familiar as you wish dawn in the mountains Buttercup turned back to the source of the sound and stared down as, in first light, the man in black struggled to remove his mask. Oh, my sweet Wesley, Buttercup said. What have I done to you now? Oh, such a good scene. I really love that scene. In fact, this was the scene that I brought as an offering to my book club last week as a what's our favourite scene. Uh, sorry guys, I hope you didn't mind hearing it again. And I talked about Northanger Abbey to the point that they were bored of it. So, well, they, I thought they were bored of it. So that's what I bought. But yes, I absolutely love it because it's just, Buttercup has so much oomph in this scene. Like compared to later ones or earlier ones where she's just not got a lot going on upstairs. She repeatedly back chats someone who has repeatedly threatened to kill her iconic uh, and i was i would go so far as to say that the film actually improves on this scene by including the line life is pain highness anyone else who says differently is selling something ah so good so while on the whole i do wish the buttercup was given a sword at least once she does have some backbone to her to tie it back to last week's podcast, I think one of the reasons I love The Princess Bride so dearly is because it is such a strongly character-driven book. The characters are all given fun, engaging backstories that really make you root for the goodies and wish death on the baddies, which any good fairy tale makes you do. Obviously, the book is able to expand on backstories in a way that the film doesn't have time to do well. For instance, we learn that Fezzik's parents got him into fighting when he was about nine due to the fact that he was already the size of an above-average man and that he just wants to chill out and make rhymes instead of travelling around the world beating people up. We see that in the long year when Inigo's father, Domingo, was making the sword for the six-fingered man, the frenzied madness of a genius through the eyes of an adoring, frightened son, and how by the time Domingo is murdered in front of Inigo, he has not been truly his for a long time. Man, I love an ego. Of course, you cannot talk about The Princess Bride without discussing the story of its creation. To preface this story, may I just say, I am an idiot. In William Goldman's foreword, uh, he lets us know that this is his favourite book, despite the fact that he had never read it. It was read to him by his father when he was a young boy, and he would never dream of reading it himself because his father's voice and the voices he gave to all the characters are what really brought it to life, and he wanted to just have that as its own perfect little memory. Uh, however, 
when his own son is turning 10, he decides that actually he wants to share this with him. So he hunts high and low for a copy of S. Morgenstern's The Princess Bride, which by now is long out of print, and eventually finds it. And is slightly heartbroken when his son does not enjoy it, finds it boring. Wanting to see if his son is just reading it wrong, Goldman reads it himself and discovered that it is a boring, long-winded tale of a country's history, with all the action and adventure and romance just lightly swirled in. Pages and pages are devoted to ladies packing and unpacking and hats and political theory and hypothetically satire, but really it's just some old guy being boring. Presented to him by his father as a young boy was a good parts version that left out all the dumb boring stuff, and so William Goldman sets out to work on a version made up of only the good parts, the moments of swashbuckling romance and intrigue. Great story, huh? It's completely apocryphal. It never happened. There was no original Princess Bride manuscript by S. Morgenstern. And I found myself in a strange position where I kind of got that, but apparently did not grasp it enough to not make a fool of myself in front of my brother. Thank you for taking it so graciously and not making me feel like a fool. Brother. Yeah, that wasn't true. He absolutely made me feel like a fool. But besides that, this book fast became one of my all-time favourites. In discussion with my brother, who uh, read it sometime before me, I learned that he struggled to enjoy the style of it. You see, Goldman drops into the narrative every now and then to let you know what he has changed, why, and to fill any gaps. My brother felt that this prevented the characters from having their own little moment of being real and he struggled to connect with it. And to be honest, I do get where he is coming from because there were some times I was like, I just kind of want to read it. But if if you are a seasoned reader of the book, then you can just skip through it because the editor's notes are in a slightly different type font and you can tell when he stops. Uh, it stops being Goldman. So you can just skip back to where the action picks up again. But yeah, I'm a complete sucker and found myself drawn in by this fake little story Goldman spun me. Darn you, Goldman. There are so many incredible moments in the book that this whole episode could have just been me doing an eight-hour reading. Yes, with all the voices. I find the moment, is, is particularly in the film, but it is also in the book, uh, where Inigo finally finds the six-fingered man and he's trying to break down a door to get to him and he's screaming for Fezzik to help him. Uh, or when he finally takes him down with the immortal words, Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Oh, so good. Or when an unknowingly incapacitated Wesley takes hum- makes Humperdinck willingly surrender with nothing but the power of psychology. But the scene I have chosen for the final excerpt is the only scene it could possibly be. It's a long scene, but we've come this far, so you might as well stick around while I do a barely passable imitation of Billy Crystal as he plays disgraced, disgraced Miracle Man, Miracle Max, as he is asked by Inigo and Fezzik to help out an asset who is, inconveniently, a little not alive. Max opened the door of Peaksworth. I don't know you. Aren't you the miracle Max that worked all those years for the king? The skinny guy said. I got fired, didn't you hear? It's a very fa- painful subject. You shouldn't have bought it up. Good night. Next time learn a little manners. And closed the door. Rat tat. Rat tat tat. Get away, I'm telling you, or I'll call the brute squad. I'm on the brute squad, this other voice from outside the door said. A big, deep voice you really wanted to stay friendly with. We need a miracle. It's very important, the skinny guy said from outside. I'm retired, Max said. Anyway, you wouldn't want someone the king got rid of, would you? I might kill whoever it was you wanted me to miracle. He's already dead, the skinny guy said. 
He is, huh? Max said, a little interest in his voice now. He opened the door of Peaksworth again. I'm good at dead. Please, the skinny guy said. Bring him in. I'm making no promises, Miracle Max answered after some thought. This huge guy and this skinny guy brought in this big guy and put them on the hot floor. Max poked the corpse. Not so stiff as some, he said. The skinny guy said, we have money. Then go and get some great genius specialist, why don't you? Why waste time messing around with me? I guide the who the king fired. It almost killed him when it happened. For the first two years, he wished it had. His teeth fell out from gnashing. He pulled a few loyal tufts from the scalp in his wild anger. You're the only miracle man left alive in Florence, the skinny guy said. Oh, so that's why you come to me. One of you said, what will we do with this corpse? And the other one said, let's take a fly on that miracle man the king fired. And the first one probably said, what have we got to lose? He can't kill a corpse. And the other one probably said, you are a wonderful miracle man, the skinny guy said. It was all politics that you got fired. Don't insult me and say wonderful. I was great. I am great. There was never, never, you hear me, Sonny? A miracle man who could match me, half the miracle techniques I invented. And then they fired me. Suddenly his voice trailed off. He was very old and weak and the effort at passionate speech had drained him. Sir, please sit down, the skinny guy said. Don't sir me, Sonny, Miracle Max said. He was tough when he was young, and he was still tough. I got work to do. I was feeding my witch when you came in. I gotta finish that now. And he lifted up the hut trap door and took the ladder down from the cellar, locking the trap door behind him. When that was done, he put his finger to his lips and ran to the old woman cooking hot chocolate over the coals. Max had married Valerie back a million years ago, and it seemed like at Miracle School, where she worked as a potion ladler. She wasn't, of course, a witch, but when Max started practice, every miracle man had to have one, so Valerie didn't mind. He called her a witch in public, and she learned enough of the witch trade to pass herself off as one under pressure. Listen, listen, Max said, whispered, gesturing repeatedly to the hut above. Upstairs, you'll never guess what. I got a giant and a Spaniard. A Spanish fella. Scars and everything. One tough cookie. Let them steal whatever they want. We'd have nothing worth fighting over. They don't want to steal. They want to buy. Me, they got a corpse up there, and they want a miracle. You were always good at dead. Valerie said. She hadn't seen him trying so hard not to seem excited since the firing, but had all but done him in. She very carefully kept her own excitement under control. If only he would work again. Her Max was such a genius, they'd all come back. Every patient, Max would be honoured again, and they could move out of the hut. In the old days, the hut was where they tried experiments. Now it was home. You had nothing pressing on for this evening, so why take the case? Why not take the case? I could, I admit that, no question, but I suppose I did. You know human nature, they probably try getting out without paying. How can I force a giant to pay if he doesn't want to? Who needs that kind of grief? I send them on their way and you bring me a nice cup of chocolate. Besides, I was halfway through an article on Eagle's Claws that was very well written. Get the money in advance, go, demand. If they say no, I'm with them. If they say yes, bring the money down to me, I'll feed it to the frog. They'll never find out if they change their mind and try and rob it back. Max started back up the ladder. What should I ask for? I haven't done a miracle in, what, three years now? Prices may have skyrocketed. Fifty, you think? If they got fifty, I'll consider. If they not, they out they go. Right, Valerie agreed. And the minute miracle, the, the minute Max had shut the trap door, she clambered silently up the ladder and pressed her ear to the ceiling. Sir, we are in such a terrible rush, so, the one voice said, Don't hurry me, Sonny. You hurry, miracle man. You get random miracles. What do you want? You'll do it then? I didn't say I'd do it, Sonny. Don't try and pressure him, Miracle Man. Not this one. You try pressuring me, out you go. How much money you got? Give me your money, Fezzik. The same voice said again. He was all I've got. His great voice boomed. You counted an ego. There was a pause. Sixty-five is what we got, one called an ego said. Valerie was about to clap her hands in joy when Max said, I never work for anything that lit in my life. You gotta be joking. Excuse me again. I'll go belch my witch. She's done eating now. Valerie hurried back down to the coals and waited until Max joined her. No good, he said. They only got twenty. Valerie stirred away at the stove. She knew the truth, but dreaded having to say it, so she tried another trick. 
We're practically out of chocolate powder. Twenty would sure would be a help at tomorrow's barters. No chocolate powder? Mag said, visibly upset. Chocolate was one of his favorites right after cough drops. Maybe if it was a good cause, you could lower yourself to work for twenty. Valerie said, find out why they need the miracle. They'd probably lie. Use the bellows cram if you're in doubt. Look, I would hate to have it on my own conscience if we didn't do a miracle for nice people involved. You're a pushy lady, Max said, but he went upstairs. Okay, he said to the skinny guy. What's so special that I should bring out all the hundreds of people pestering me every day for my miracles for this particular fella? And believe me, it better be worthwhile. Inigo was about to say, how so he can tell me how to kill Count Rugen. But it didn't quite make it sound like the kind of thing that would strike a cranky miracle man in aiding the general betterment of mankind. So he said, he's got a, a wife. He's got 15 kids. They they haven't a shred of food. He, if he stays dead, they'll starve. Oh, Sonny, are you a liar? Max said. And then he went to the corner and got out huge bellows. I'll ask him, Max grunted, lifting the heavy bellows toward Wesley. He's a corpse. He can't talk. Inigo said, we got our ways, was all Max would answer. And he stuck the huge bellows all the way down Wesley's throat and started to pump. You see, he explained as he pumped, there's different kinds of dead. There's sort of dead, mostly dead, and all dead. This fella here, he's only sort of dead, which means there's still a little bit of memory. There's still little bits of brain. If you have high pressure here, a little more there, sometimes you get results. Wesley was beginning to swell slightly from all the pumping. What are you doing? Fezzik said, starting to get upset. Never mind, I'm just filling his lungs. I guarantee I ain't hurting him. He stopped pumping the bellows for a few more minutes and then started shouting into Wesley's ear. What's so important? What's here's worth coming back for? What you got waiting for you? Max carried the bellows back to the corner and then got out a pen and paper. It takes a while for it to work its way out, so you might as well answer me some questions. How well do you know this guy? Inigo didn't much want to answer, since it might have been... It might have sounded strange admitting that they'd only met once, and uh, to duel to the death. How do you mean exactly? He replied. Well, for example, Max said, is he ticklish or not? Ticklish? Inigo exploded anguishly. Ticklish? Life and death are all around, and you talk ticklish? Don't you yell at me, Max exploded right back, and don't you mark my methods. Tickling can be a terrific in the proper instances. I had a corpse once, worse than this fella, mostly dead he was, and I tickled him, and I tickled him, I tickled his toes, I tickled his armpits, and his ribs, and I got a peacock feather, and right, right after his belly button. I worked all day, and I worked all night, and the following dawn, the following dawn marked me. This corpse said, I just hate that, and I said, hate what? And he said, being tickled. I've come all the way back from the dead to ask you to stop. And I said, you mean this is what I'm doing now, is the peacock feather, it bothers you? And he said, you wouldn't guess how much it bothers me. And of course, I just kept asking him questions about tickling, making him talk back to me, answering me because I don't have to tell you, because once you get a corp- corpse really caught in a conversation, your battles are half over. True love. Fezzik grabbed onto an ego in panic, and they both pivoted, staring at the man in black, who was silent again. True love, he said, and Hugo cried. You heard him. True love is what he wants to come back for. That's certainly worthwhile. Sonny, don't tell me what's worthwhile. True love is the best thing in the world, except cough drops. Everyone knows that. You'll save him, then? Fezzik said. Yes, absolutely. I would save him if he had said true love, but you misheard, whereas I, being an expert on the bellows cram, will tell you that any qualified tongue man would only be happy to understand to verify, namely, the F sound that is the hardest for a corpse to master, and there it comes out as V. And what your friend clearly said was to blave, which he obviously meant to bluff. Clearly, he's either involved with some shady business deal or a card game and wishes to win, and that is certainly not reason enough for a miracle. I'm sorry, but I will never change my mind once it's made up. Goodbye. Take your corpse with you. Liar! Liar! Shrieked suddenly from the now open trap door. Miracle Max whirled. 
Get back, witch, he commanded. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. He was un- she was advancing on him now in ancient, tiny fury. And after what you've just done, I don't even think I want to be that anymore. Miracle Max tried to calm her, but she was having none of it. He said, true love, Max. Even I could hear it. True love, true love. Don't go on, Max said. And there was now pleading coming from somewhere. Valerie turned to Inigo. He is rejecting you because he is afraid. He is afraid he's done that his miracles are no good for once majestic figures. Not true, Max said. You're right, Valerie agreed. It isn't true. They were never majestic, Max. You were never any good. The ticklish cure you over there, you saw a fluke. All the drowners are returned. Chance, Valerie, we've been married 80 years now. How could you do this to me? Because true love is expiring and you haven't got the decency to tell them why you won't help. Well, I do. I say this. Prince Humperdinck was right to fire you. Don't say that name in my hut, Valerie. You made a pledge to me that you'd never breathe that name. Humperdinck? Humperdinck, 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 Humperdinck. At least he knows a phony when he sees one. Max fled toward the trap door, his hands going to his ears. But this is his fiance's true love. Inigo said, if you bring him back to life, he will stop Prince Humperdinck's marriage. Max's hands left his ears. This corpse here. He comes back to life. Prince Humperdinck suffers. Humiliations galore. Haha, now that's what I call a worthwhile reason. Miracle Max said, give me the 65. I'm on the case. He knelt beside Wesley. Hmm, he said. I had to do it. I had to. I'm sorry if it completely ruined that scene for you, but I couldn't not. I could talk forever on the epic highs and lows of this incredible book. It fits beautifully into my preferred genre of chaotic academia, which is like dark academia, except we don't have our lives anything like as bullet journaled, nor are we wearing as nice blazers. I speak. It speaks to my sword fight loving, pretty dress appreciating, romantic soul. I find it fascinating because obviously as you get older you obviously learn more about yourself and I discovered that despite most of this story being based on the power of true love which I find a saccharine and challenging thing to appreciate it does warm the cold dead leaves of my heart. Carrie Hughes and Robin Wright had exceptional chemistry in the film. Andre the Giant perfectly captured Fezzik's playful joy and Mandy Patinkin literally bodied a man's quest to honour his father having lost his own to cancer. The film is one of the most well-cast, well-directed, heartwarming films of any out there. And since William Goldman wrote both the book and the screenplay for the film, it's like carrying the film around in your pocket. I love it so much. In conclusion, I think that The Princess Bride helps us all remember that big, exciting things that happen in our lives can be created out of our own imaginings. But that doesn't mean they are any less important to us. And that every so often... We let ourselves believe that there is a masked man out there dueling a sword wizard for the woman he lost, braving fire swamps, R.O.U.S.s, and the machine of death in the zoo of death. Because what is life if not infinitely improved by wolf to wolf? I really hope um, that you guys have enjoyed the slightly longer excerpts. I know that the ones I usually do are not that long. I think that Billy Crystal, uh, Billy Crystal Miracle Max segment actually was about 10 minutes long. So thank you so much for bearing with me. Uh, but yeah, I hope you've enjoyed that. Sorry if it's not too much to your taste, but please just skip through and listen to the rest of the podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So there we are. As I say, my friends may now dare to hope that I will stop banging on about the Princess Bride, but to be honest, that's super unlikely. Sorry. Thank you all so much for coming and listening again. Uh, You know how much I appreciate it. If you have any other ideas for books or films or anything that you'd like me to talk about, then please head over to Twitter at RedheadFastTalk and drop me a tweet. I very rarely check it, but I will definitely start because I know that their tweets are just going to simply become pouring in. I'm really hoping to bring you another episode next week, and then we've got one scheduled for the week after, so we might actually get some trials 
reaction on this guys are you proud of me are you proud of me i know you're proud of me uh, so thank you all much thank you all so much for all your loyal support and it i just i appreciate it so much so thank you so much everyone i hope you all have a lovely week and i will speak soon Also, Carrie Hughes is really hot in that movie.